2021. Congratulations for making it here. 2020 was quite a year. <clears throat> it is uh, certainly a surprise for me to be up here. Uh, <laughs> Velody called me midweek and said he needed, uh, needed me to stand in. And my first response was to hesitate uh, and to think certainly he could find someone better. <laughs> but I have learned that when God asks you to do something, you best answer. <laughs> so I'm here. Uh, Roger asked me to tell a little bit about myself. Uh, my background is public relations. I've been in this field in healthcare public relations for uh, more than 20 years. Uh, started at Avondale College uh, in Australia and then uh, worked for Loma Linda uh, for 15 years. And then uh, we've been in Kalispell, Montana, uh, at the hospital there for the past seven. And I saw the job open up here uh, at the conference, and uh, I was getting tired of healthcare work, and it's a great time to be out of healthcare work. So it all worked out. And uh, so we've been uh, uh, going around, visiting different churches, and it's been a very difficult year uh, to find a home church, and uh, but we've we've enjoyed uh, going around. Uh, we we enjoy this church. Um, you folks have a very nice church. I I've never uh, preached uh, to a TV audience before, um, so uh, welcome to those of you at home. Uh, my mother always told me I had a face for radio, so sorry about that. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we start this new year, um, there's so much before us and so much behind us, and we pray that you will guide this church and guide uh, these people here um, to further your mission. Um, I pray that... Um, that my message is one worthy of you, and, and that these will be your words and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When Randy met Jenny, he knew there was something special about her. She was the most beautiful woman he had ever met. There was something about her, something mysterious, maybe even a little dangerous. He had to learn more, so he pursued her. It took just three days, and he managed to find himself engaged to be married. The couple was married in Paris, and not even eight months later, Jenny gave birth to a son. Randy had not ever really thought much of children. To his way of thinking, they were more of an annoying distraction. Jenny seemed to agree. They were far too busy hanging out with their friends and spending their money, of which they seemed to have an endless supply. Their son, Spencer, began life alone. As most all children do, Spencer loved his mother dearly. 
But Jenny was distant, much too distant for Spencer's liking. Fortunately, with the family's wealth, they were able to afford a full-time babysitter. Spencer's parents could give him little love, little encouragement, and little support. But his babysitter could give him that in spades. At the tender age of 16, Spencer had a dream. Destruction and war surrounded him. But in his dream, he commanded a vast force, a vast empire of which he was the lone defender. He started to tell his friends, his classmates, about his dream. We will all be in terrible danger, he told them. But fear not, I will save us. Already love-starved and in desperate need of attention, Spencer was mercilessly tormented. He was bullied by the other students. His recounting of his dream did not help his relations with his friends. He begged his parents to visit him at his school. They usually did not bother to even respond to his letters. His teachers described him as negligent, easily distracted, and constantly late. He was performing at the bottom of his class. His father, Randy, died suddenly, and Spencer opted to attend military academy. He applied and was immediately denied. He applied again. He was denied again. On his third attempt, he was finally accepted. After 15 months of school, Spencer requested to be sent off to war. It was, to him, the fulfillment of his dream. He was allowed to join the regiment on one condition. He was to serve, not as a soldier. He was to serve as an embedded journalist. It seemed a small price to pay. And he started sending reports back home, of how the fighting was progressing and what life was like on the front line. After serving three years overseas, Spencer was ready to claim the fulfillment of his dream. He returned home and prepared himself for a political career. However, in his first election, Spencer was defeated soundly. With no clear path in front of him, Spencer returned to the battlefield once again, but this time as a full-time journalist. However, on his journey to the front, his convoy was attacked by the enemy. Spencer fought bravely and long enough that he was able to allow several of his fellow soldiers to escape the enemy. But the enemy soon overtook him. Spencer 
at the age of 25, was now a prisoner of war. We find a somewhat similar story in Genesis. We'll find that over in chapter 37, starting in the middle of verse 2. We read, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now let's stop there. What at this point do we know about Joseph? Well, not much. We know from previous chapters in Genesis that his father Jacob loved his wife Rachel more than his wife Leah. But Rachel could not bear Jacob children. So after ten children from Leah and the handmaids Bilhah and Zilpah, the Lord opened Rachel's womb. Joseph and Benjamin were soon born. We'll go on to verse 3. Now, Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic, a coat of many colors. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So we now know three more things. We know that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons. We know that Jacob made Joseph a coat that he did not make for his other sons. And finally, we know that the other sons were aware of all this. Let's head to verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you going to really rule over us? So they hated him more for his dreams and for his words. Now, imagine for a moment that I am standing up here today, as I am, and I tell you, I've had a dream. I've dreamed that one day you will bow to me. How does that make you feel about yourself? Probably not very good. How does it make you feel about me? <laughs> Probably not very good. <laughs> now, much can be said of the wisdom of Joseph. Much can be said of his loyalty and his ability to see the good 
in any situation. (laughs) But perhaps his ability to read people and their emotions may not have been a strength of Joseph's. Because despite the anger and jealousy of his brothers, he continues. Verse 9. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So it is in this context that Joseph is sent to find his brothers in the field tending sheep. After traveling some distance, Joseph locates his brothers. Let's skip down to verse 18. When they, his brothers, saw him from a distance, and before he came close to him, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, Come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast has devoured him. Then let us see what becomes of his dreams. So let's set the stage a little. Joseph has walked quite a ways trying to locate his brothers. He's not seen them in some time. I can envision Joseph as he spotted his father's flock, quickening his step, walking faster. At the sight of the first of his brothers that he sees, he waves excitedly. He hasn't seen them in a long time. Perhaps he even has important news from his father that he's excited to share. And as he nears... His brothers crowd around him. Joseph's happiness at seeing his brothers soon turns to fear. They roughly grab him and hold him down. Angrily, they strip that coat off of him. The beautiful coat. The coat that represents his father's love for him. His brothers throw it to the ground in disgust. Despite his protests and his pleadings, they pick Joseph up and they throw him into a nearby empty well. Now, we often read quickly over this part of the story. You see, we have the benefit of knowing Joseph's whole story. We know how it turns out. We know how his dream eventually became 
reality. But at this point, at this moment, Joseph is at the bottom of that pit. Put there by his brothers, who are even now plotting how to murder him. This is where we need to hit pause on the story. Let's put ourselves in Joseph's sandals for a moment. How do you, as Joseph, overcome the feeling of complete helplessness? When you are certain that you are destined for something greater. Are you focused on the hope of something better? Or are you overcome by the dire circumstances that surround you? Do you blame God for putting you into that pit? Or do you praise him that you're still living? Was the dream just a dream? One can only imagine the thoughts that went through Joseph's head. Sitting there at the bottom of the pit. What will the future hold for Joseph? It was, to be honest, the same question that Spencer had asked himself regularly. He also was quite sure he had a destiny. He had a dream. Now, at age 65, he had a lifetime of failures behind him. It was 40 years ago that he had been captured by the enemy as a POW. He had led a daring escape, even taking one other POW with him to freedom. Wandering some 300 miles with no map, they found their way back to safety. He later returned and helped free the remaining 160 prisoners that still were there. But that was 40 years ago. He had since survived being stabbed, several bouts of pneumonia that doctors thought for sure would be the death of him, three life-threatening car accidents, several failed attempts at a political career, and other significant failures he couldn't even bring himself to remember. Despite a few small wins here and there, He was now, at age 65, considered a has-been. A member of the old guard. A loser. A man who was certain he had a destiny. But no real history to back that up with. Spencer was regarded as a joke. Joke. 
not someone to be taken seriously. Every close call with death, every loss, every moment in the pit of failure only served to remind Spencer that he was meant for more. It was, as Spencer would often say, not the end. It wasn't even the beginning of the end, but it was perhaps the end of the beginning. Most in the country were completely surprised when, through a series of unforeseen events, Spencer's destiny was realized. The date was May 10, 1940, and Winston Spencer Churchill was now Prime Minister. For Joseph, however, that pit was not one he could easily remove himself from. It was not his end, however, though it may have seemed like it at the time. It was simply the end of the beginning. Imagine the relief and joy that Joseph must have felt when his brothers finally pulled him from that pit. I imagine that Joseph was very angry. But after thinking about it for some time, well, he was ready to forgive his brothers. He was ready to return to how life was before. His brothers would probably apologize to him, and they'd be back joking with each other and having fun like they used to a long time ago. Down to verse 25. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. So, as Joseph is being brought out of that pit to what he imagines is freedom once again, the return to normality, the return to the loving arms of his father. Can you imagine the horror in the realization that things have not gotten better? His situation has just gotten worse, much worse. In fact, as we continue Joseph's story, we discover that 
at each moment that Joseph feels his life is about to improve, it in fact gets worse. How many times did Joseph think this is the end? Or even the beginning of the end? Yet at each instance, God gently reminds him, no, oh no, this is simply the end of the beginning. Again, we have the benefit of knowing the end of Joseph's story. Joseph does not have that luxury. And yet, at no time does Joseph curse God. This includes Joseph being imprisoned from anywhere from two years to 13 years. And can you imagine? Can you imagine having a dream indicating a future vastly different from your present? And years later, as you sit in prison, wondering, when? When will this become a reality? At what point do you start to question? How many years would it take you to question where is God in your life? And yet, there is no record in the Bible of him ever questioning God. What faith? This brings up some difficult questions, however. Could God have used Joseph to further his plan if Joseph never experienced these hardships? Certainly. Though perhaps in a different way. We know not God's ways, so this is a little hard to get into specifics, but I think yes. So the second question then is, why didn't God use Joseph's tribulations to impact the lives of others? Nah, <laughs> that was a trick question. <laughs> because of course he did. Even as we look at the story of the pit, Reuben was clearly affected. Judah was affected. When Joseph was sold as a slave, he impacted the lives of Potiphar and the other slaves. When he was imprisoned, he impacted the life of the chief jailer and the other prisoners. He impacted the life of the baker. He impacted the life of the chief butler. His tribulations even impacted the life of Pharaoh. Can lives be impacted for the positive through grief and suffering? Can lives be impacted for the good through tribulations and difficulty? And can lives be impacted for the good through hardship and loss? The answer to all of these questions is yes, a resounding yes. As the Bible says in Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good 
to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things, all situations, not just when things are hunky-dory. So, on June 18, 1940, we find Winston Churchill in his darkest hour. His military advisors had estimated that France could hold off a German advance for several months, at least. This would allow Britain ample time to reinforce the French troops and draw a line in the sand. Germany's advance was too fast. France could not withstand the onslaught. France could not defend itself for a matter of months or even weeks. It was a matter of days. Churchill was devastated. He stood before the House of Commons to deliver the news. What General Wagand has called the Battle of France is over, he said. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed, and the life of the world may move forward in broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this is our finest hour. Not the end. Not even the beginning of the end. But perhaps the end of the beginning. And so... We find ourselves here at the beginning of 2021. Normally, we begin a new year with hope and promise, a renewed vision, mission. Do we still feel that way after 2020? How many of us through this last year thought, surely, this is the end. Or at least the beginning of the end. The end is close. We can feel that at least. But what if, and follow me here, what if this is simply the end of your beginning? Beginning. 
What if this is the moment that God has been preparing you for? You see, you may find yourself in that pit. That pit of despair. That pit of loneliness. That pit of addiction. That pit of feeling that you are unworthy. You may have even been put there by someone you thought loved you. I'm here to tell you this morning that no matter your situation, no matter your troubles, no matter how deep in that pit you are, God still has a plan for you. It is, as the Bible says in 1 Kings 19.11, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. This still, small voice has been trying to reach you for a long time. Our daily duties, the noise of the world, TV, internet, Facebook, politics, has drowned out that voice for so long Yet he waits. He waits for you. No matter your situation, no matter your tribulations, we are all at the end of the beginning. The moment God has been waiting for us to finally slow down and finish his plan. Some of you may be asking, what is God's plan for me? Well, the answer may surprise you. You may want to be sitting down for this. You see, you are the plan. You have been equipped with spiritual gifts. You've been equipped with a great commission. And you have been asked to be the hands and feet of the king of the universe. Nothing can stop you in your mission to bring one more to his kingdom. Not coronavirus, not closed churches, not the world coming to a crash around us. How will you respond? How will you work to fulfill your role in this great controversy? What will it take for all of us to realize that our pit, the walls and failures that surround us, they are not the end. They are not even the beginning of the end, but they are perhaps the end of the beginning. May we so set ourselves to our unique faith May we 
so show love to our neighbors. May we so welcome the unwanted and unloved into our churches. May we so connect with our community in new and amazing ways. May we so dedicate ourselves to God's will and furthering his mission that a thousand years from now, as we wander the halls of the Almighty, we will look back and say, on earth, this, this was our finest hour. <laughs>